Welcome to the sixth podcast in our first Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called God's People and an Offensive Jesus. Well, good morning, church. Whether you're here in body, present in the building, or online, we're glad that you're here to worship together. Hey, take a second to wave to someone, to greet somebody else in the place in a socially distant, acceptable fashion, and acknowledge each other's presence. That is always a good thing. Good. Again, welcome as we continue our series in First Peter, I'll just point out the obvious that 2020 continues to throw challenges in uh, our direction, in all of our directions, in different ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, thank you for praying for my family. This past week, we saw the passing of my dad. He made it to 102, eight months and change. I don't know the exact number of days. Uh, and uh, we had his services passed Tuesday afternoon, Blessed Assurance that we sang this morning, that was also in the service uh, for my dad. That was a favorite hymn of both my mom and dad, uh, beautiful, rich words and at hymn. I hope you, as you sang, I hope you pondered what you're singing about. All is at rest <laughs> uh, in that kind of beautiful assurance. Um, scripture speaks of a blessed hope that believers have, and we've talked about hope at different times in different uh, sermons. Uh, the hope that we have in Christ will not and cannot disappoint. It doesn't always feel like it's there. It doesn't always feel strong in its presence. So we can't go by our emotions when it comes to hope. Hope isn't willy-nilly, I hope it works out, I hope the Vikings win today. I don't know how many times I've used the Vikings as a bad example, so forgive me for that. But hope is is grounded in the, the certainty that Christ lives. And because he lives, we will live. Uh, it's that simple. So because he lives, we can be at rest in him no matter what 2020 brings our direction. Thank you for praying for us and, and being concerned for us. I know that David King was here last week and he took a quick little detour away from 1 Peter. So this morning, we get back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me say just one other quick thing. We, we've kind of been hit or miss with those booklets that you see. Uh, we laid a few of the extras out on the tables. If you haven't grabbed one yet, please grab one because I don't want a stack of them at the end of the series, okay? Uh, I want you to grab one. Uh, they're free. Use it however you want and, uh, and benefit from that. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 11 is where we're going to jump back in this morning. So why don't I read that for us? You can follow along in your booklet or on the screen here. Starting at verse 4, As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of tumbling and stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word to our hearts and minds this morning. As that passage began, Peter says, as you come to him. That's what we're doing this morning corporately, and I think that is of special significance as we consider Peter's lofty words. And they are kind of lofty, aren't they? He speaks in these grand sweeping ideas of what God has done and what God is building and continuing to do. So we have to try to grasp the significance of these, of these grand sweeping ideas that Peter throws before us. So we begin to do that with these first words in, in verse four, as you come to him, to understand, in other words, what kind of salvation that we have as we come back to him together this morning, what his calling is on our lives, how we are actively continuing to put away the former things as we've already looked at in chapter two, and as we are continuing to drink this milk, which we're gonna get back to in a second. But as you come to him, these verses tell us these three things that we're gonna consider this morning. Number one, who we are. And the plural is significant and it's on purpose. We're considering who we are, what Jesus has done, and how we are responding to what it is that he has done. So, uh, first of all, we have the immortal words of John Wayne to lead us this morning. As John so infam infamously said, get off your horse and drink your milk. I don't know where he said that. Do we have any John Wayne fans this morning? Zero, all right. It was one. It was a long time ago when John Wayne is around, but if anybody remembers and can hear in your mind, the fun thing with certain quotations is if you know the character, you can hear his or her voice say it as you read the words. So John told us, and we're gonna follow in the footsteps of John, we're gonna get off our horse and we're gonna drink our milk. If you remember, Peter told us that that's an important thing to do. Uh, chapter two, verse two, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
And we consider that neither communion with God nor community with other believers happens by accident. We gotta keep tasting. At some point, if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, you've tasted Jesus. You've had that moment or moments where you've been filled up and you've known Jesus is good and Jesus is all I've needed and Jesus hears me and responds and fills me up and so forth. You've tasted at some point. And sometimes we forget to keep, back, keep going back to Jesus to taste more, to drink in more of him, okay? So this is a reminder that we've gotta be doing that. So what does uh, scripture tell us? As just like a brief review, we were at this, uh, at this point a couple weeks ago to speak the truth in love, to don't hold back, to speak honestly, openly, plainly, directly to each other as believers, and that doesn't come easy in the land of passive aggressive and so forth, but we've gotta do that or make that more and more of a habit to do. Don't forget meeting together, all the more stressful and complicated right now. I believe that we are, this, you know, through the fire. That's our, that's our series title. I believe we are going through a testing fire that is testing us and our values and our lifestyles and our priorities. It's all the more difficult to be together, but now more than ever, we need each other. And we've gotta find ways to do that, to come together, to be the community, the people, the fellowship, the koinonia, that word that, uh, that Luke uses in the book of Acts, the significance of fellowship as believers. We've gotta keep finding ways to immerse ourselves in that. So why do we do those things? We're a different people now. Peter is stressing that. He's bashing us over the head with the words that he chooses to use for us this morning. So remember, I promised I'd do this every week. So here we go back to this. It's not do this and you will live. We don't look at Peter's words. We never look at any words in the scripture uh, to find uh, some moral stand rock to stand on. It's not that. It's do this because you live. We have the opportunity to respond in obedience because of this great salvation that we have. So don't ever lose track of that as we continue to move forward and move through 1 Peter. So what are we? Uh, that's where Peter takes us back into some of these ideas, these grand ideas that he's throwing out before us. Uh, who are we? We are living stones, he says in verse four. Uh, stones, living stones, uh, this building uh, that speaks of a cornerstone and a capstone, that's where it goes. So unless you're an architect, you may kind of lose the significance of this grand idea, this picture that he's painting. Uh, but we can't lose it entirely, even if we're a little distant from the metaphor and the words he uses. But uh, it's, it's especially important for us as we consider who it is we're becoming. So this building that Jesus is building, that he's all about, is a living one that starts with Jesus as the cornerstone. Everything squares and plums with Jesus. He is the standard for the building of the church. And, and Peter even uses, he uses a couple different words. Uh, and commentators, scholars like to argue about what is he, is he this or that more, but I mean he's, he's both in architectural sense Jesus is the cornerstone, and he's also the capstone. 
He's that last stone. He's the beginning and the end. What a more beautiful way, because Jesus refers to himself as the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. So he is also that when it comes to the church. The church begins with Jesus. We know what the church should be about because of Jesus. And at the end of all things, Jesus is the final piece that holds it all together. In a Roman arch, if you know anything about that, I know very little, but I know that capstone was that last piece that as the weight and the friction was placed in just the right place, if the engineer got it right, then that capstone would hold the whole arch together and that arch could hold up tons of weight over it. If the capstone was perfect, Jesus is perfect, and he holds it all together. So Peter is leading us in that direction, but it's important to note, and we'll come back to this at the end, we're not just talking about any old stone, piece, chunk of rock, whatever. We're talking about living stones. Each of us, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are a living part of what it is that Jesus is building, which is his bride, the church. Let's move on. You are chosen, he says. God's plan is not by accident. <laughs> it's not open to chance, your chance or anybody else's. You're chosen. God considered you, created you, planned for you to be a part of this grand uh, construction project that he's building. Uh, so you can never, and I can never say at some point, even though it's tempting to say, I'm not good enough uh, to be a part of what God is doing, certainly God has made a mistake as he's chosen me. None of that is ever possibly true. God chose me simply because he wanted to choose me to be a part of what it is he's doing. And let's move on. You are, what else does he say? You are honored. Uh, where do we get that? Uh, verse seven of chapter two. So the honor is for you who believe, okay? So if you have NIV, other translations, it, tr it translates in different ways. And uh, this is where I really like uh, the elect standard version, the ESV, because it leads us towards really what the language is saying. There is something that has happened with Jesus that we get to benefit to this amazing deg uh, degree. For those who believe, not only all these other things we talk about, there is this level of honor that is bestowed, given to those who believe. You will never be put to shame because of the honor that comes from God the Father. <clears throat> one, uh, one scholar puts it this way. The delight that the Father has in his Son is given to us. As Christ is precious to the Father, so we are made precious. Have you thought of yourself with that kind of honor? It is unreal, is it not, to think that God looks at us now the way that he honors his son Jesus. That is the status that all believers have by a gift. What an outrageous thing to consider. A gift, a free gift given to somebody like me, to people like you. Not, it, we can never settle with this misconstrued idea that God puts up with us. 
because of our failures or shortcomings or, or complications or problems or baggage that we bring into this relationship with Christ and each other. Never is that the case. God never has to try to get through things with you. He is never looking at you in that way. In fact, it is the extreme opposite. We have this honored, privileged relationship that is just like Jesus. Do you know what it's like to have something like that in this world? To have someone who chooses you and honors you that you would be elevated to that kind of precious status, not based on something that you could ever produce or accomplish, simply because you are. It's hard to find a way to illustrate this. The best thing that I could come up with is in the situation of adoption, which is exactly the image and the illustration that we have in Scripture, that we are adopted in, into the family of God. In real life, real world adoption, things are kind of similar to that. And I know we have families in our church that have adopted. I never was a part of that in my family. I know Jennifer's, one of her sisters, they've adopted kids into their family. It changes everything, does it not? A couple different quotes from parents who have adopted. I really liked when I was uh, looking this week. One parent said, they may not have my eyes, they may not have my smile, but they have all of my heart. Another parent said this, I have four children, two are adopted, and I forget which two. Isn't that great? As you look at your family, that's the kind of honor, that's the, that's the elevated precious status and relationship that you have. I don't even know which one's adopted anymore because you're all loved, you're all honored. That's the way Jesus looks at us. He doesn't look at one of us and say, you're a little bit more honored because I like you more, because you've been more obedient, you produce more for the church, you're so much more highly skilled. But don't we sometimes think like that? That some people must have a better status because they're so great, they're so lovely, they speak so well, they, they sing, they do other things, you know, they've got just a better heart than me. Uh-uh. We gotta stop that kind of crazy, negative, downward spiral narrative that fills our minds so frequently. We are all adopted in with this honored, precious, almost unbelievable status with God through Jesus Christ. That's where Peter is taking us. So that first, uh, that first comment, we've got to keep reminding ourselves who it is that we are, and Peter uh, continues to reinforce and establish that thought in our minds. Now, we go from there to what Jesus has done, okay? We've got to be reminded of that as well. The context of, of, of 1 Peter, where we've already been, has already established that. Jesus was chosen by God all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, chosen by God to cause us to be born again to a living hope. I already mentioned hope this morning, but it is living, never disappointing. Jesus, who is now the cornerstone and the capstone, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, he is at work in this grand building project that we are a part of. And as he does this building project, Peter points out 
that even as the cornerstone is laid, those who trust in him see it and uh, revel in it and respond to it and praise, but other people don't see the stone for what it is and fall over it, trip up on it, fall on their faces. That is what Peter, is exactly what Peter is talking about when he uses uh, words like stumbling block, uh, stone of stumbling in verse 8, a rock of offense, stumbling, offense. Uh, the word uh, this translated offense is scandalon in, in the Greek. It's, it's where we get the word scandal. Jesus is a scandal. He was with First Peter in the, in the first century cultural context, and he still is a scandal, which leads us to this. Why? Uh, how? Isn't Jesus supposed to be love and all love and all acceptance? How can love and acceptance be so offensive or so scandalous? Shouldn't Jesus be easy to believe in since he's love? And we've gone kind of collectively as a culture in that direction. And modern evangelical thinking has, has continues to push the church in that direction to make Jesus as easy as possible to believe in and to remove the scandal because nobody likes to see somebody trip. It's an ugly thing, right? I don't like tripping. I don't want to see anybody else do a face plant, spiritually or otherwise. So why? Why is it that there is this offense to the gospel, which is good news? So let's try to figure that out. Why does, and, and to do that, we got to understand why Peter keeps quoting Isaiah. He quotes a lot of the original Testament. The original Testament is still needed for us today, and Peter's letter proves that. So we got to remember, obviously, the original Testament is ancient to us. It's thousands of years old. But to Peter, it was many centuries old. It was still really ancient literature, and not everybody in the church that he was writing to had a Jewish background that had any understanding of the original Testament, the law of Moses. So uh, we're closer to the ancient thing than you may realize when it comes to this letter and the writing of it. So frequently he quotes from, from the Psalms, and many times, and even this morning we read, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, 700 maybe years before the time that Peter lived. So if you can see it, hopefully you can kind of see that it's a, an ancient stone relief from the time of the Assyrian Empire. If you ever go to the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, anybody ever been there? Uh, at least the last time I was there, there is a stone relief from the Assyrian Empire. Bible doesn't talk about, you know, fantasy stuff. It is grounded in reality. So if you go back enough centuries, back in the area of, of modern-day Iraq, that was where the Assyrian Empire was, very close to uh, Israel at the time of modern-day Israel. So Peter keeps quoting from Isaiah, why in the world does he do that? Let's try to get a grasp on that this morning. For a long time, and especially during the reign of David and Solomon, everybody's heard of those guys, right, those kings, Israel was one united nation. But after Solomon, Israel became a divided nation. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, and there's a southern king, kingdom called Judah. So Isaiah is a prophet during that time where the kingdom is divided. And they hated each other. 
Israel and Judah, even though they used to be one people, different tribes, at this point, they hate each other. They want to conquer and kill each other at this point. And while Isaiah is prophesying, he's speaking to the kings of Judah at the time. Uh, He was a prophet for many years. So early on in the book of Isaiah, here's here's the political background, okay? He's speaking to a people in Judah where they thought they had things figured out. They thought that by giving tribute and becoming friends with the Assyrian Empire that uh, they are going to get the, um, the step up on their hated northern enemies, Israel. Assyria was much larger, much more powerful, so you pay them off, and Assyria comes in, and they team up against the northern kingdom, Israel, and Assyria wipes them out. And I mean wipes them out. They had the, um, or they, if you look at any history, they had the distinct uh, definition of evil, the, what they did to people groups, uh, wholesale slaughtering of their enemies. And you can tell even from that relief, they thought a lot of their army. Here's a guy who is just grabbing a charging lion by the neck and then stabbing him with the other hand like it's nothing, okay? That's how they saw other people. Uh, we just, we can do it. We'll just wipe you out. So they wiped out Israel. Judah and their leaders thought, hey, great. We got the upper hand here. Uh, We've got some friends in in Assyria that we can just kind of keep this going, right? Well, then the table turns. And while Isaiah's prophesying, it turns out that, you know, Assyria doesn't need Judah. This tiny little country is their friend. So they wiped out Israel. Now we're going to wipe out you, Judah, You thought you were our friend, but guess what? You're not. You are the next on the chopping block, which then results in a whole lot of fear and dread because of all these conspiracy theories that were going around. That sound familiar? Political fear and dread, conspiracy theories. I think we can kind of connect with that, right? Maybe not so much the Assyrian thing, but with the other stuff going on in the time of Isaiah, I think there is a direct connect. They put all their eggs in that one basket, and that basket got flipped over. Now what? So uh, God has something to say to his people about this through Isaiah. And it starts off, chapter 8, verse 13 of Isaiah, God's message to his people. If If you're gonna fear anyone, God says, you'd better fear me. I'm the one who's in control of all of this. And they true, we all, we all need to be reminded of that, right? When you get caught up in conspiracy and dread and fear and what's going to happen next and where's the power and oh my goodness, you know, the, the wrong people have the power. What, are we, what, are we, what was us? What are we going to do? Uh, if you're going to fear anybody, fear the one who is in charge of all those powers. Fear God. Respect God. Remember that God is in control And then he also goes on to say this, Isaiah 8, verse 14, the Lord will become, and there's two things he uh, emphasizes, both a sanctuary and, and these words should sound familiar, right, from what what, uh, Peter says, become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Israel. Jerusalem. There is a lesson that, that Judah needed to learn and what they were going through with God in relationship to others and other gods. 
and other people that they turn to, there's a lesson that we need to keep learning that Peter is emphasizing. You've got to know who the real Savior is and who he isn't. If you don't know, you will stumble. You, if your good news is placed into some temporary thing or person or political construct or you name it, some kind of power, existing power, if your trust is in that, your gospel is faulty and you will stumble. That's the reminder. It's a reminder for all of us this morning. Stumbling, disobeying, uh, that is, is current for us right now. If you actually trust in something other than Christ, then Christ becomes a scandalous thing to you. If there's only a matter of time before uh, you re responding to Christ or learning more about Jesus. There's, it's only a matter of time before you hit something that trips you up. Oh, I don't like that part of Jesus. I don't get those things. I like the love part, but, right? That's where the scandal comes in. Some will stumble and disobey. God knows this. Peter tells us they were destined to do this. God's in charge of everything, even the heart and the mind. So again, if there's anybody to fear, you better fear, fear the one who is in charge of all of these things. And while that's the case, others will find in God a sanctuary. There is a peace. There is a place to go in Jesus that is unlike any other. And in fact, when everything else crumbles, he remains. If your trust is in his good news, you will find that to be true. Everyone has to choose at some point, and I mean everyone, everyone. No matter if they go to church or not, if they read the Bible or believe the Bible, if you've heard of Jesus at all, you have to come to terms with him. What is it that we do with Jesus? Will he become a sanctuary, or is he just another place to stumble? Is he just scandalous uh, or a sanctuary? Many people look at Jesus as, uh, especially you know, what is current today, as a good moral teacher. You know, we can quote him occasionally. We can look to him as an ideal moral example. But we really can't do that when we consider what he says about himself and what he teaches to all of us. There's no better quote than what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. Uh, he starts at that point. He quotes that person who says, you know, uh, that Jesus is a good teacher. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him or accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on to say that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man has said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. We believe, as followers of Jesus, we believe in what he said, that he's the Son of God. In other words, that he is God. 
He has made it clear, the Gospel of John makes it very clear, that he is God, that Jesus claims that. So that's where Lewis is going. If you read what he says, there's no in-between good moral teacher thing, because good moral teachers don't talk about themselves as God. That's, that's cuckoo land, okay? Uh, we don't, or, or, or what, cult land. We really not, should not go there, but Jesus goes there, and he's got the empty tomb to prove it. So we've got to decide. What do we do with Jesus and what he claims? So what's so scandalous about Jesus today? Very similar to the things that Peter talked about. Uh, maybe there is an area that you're stumbling on, or you know somebody who is questioning or, or confused on. Uh, there, there's plenty of things when it comes to the scandal of Jesus that are alive and functioning today. We want to accept his love we want to accept the idea of love and forgiveness, but we get tripped up on the discipleship details because Jesus was pretty black and white with the disciples, especially as he moved towards the end of his ministry, as they walked on their way to Jerusalem. He emphasized to the disciples, it's me and nothing else. Take up your cross and follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Those kinds of uh, issues that he presented to the disciples. It's me and nothing else, nothing else added to. That's scandalous today. We want Christianity to be meaningful and important, yet we also want it to be comfortable, right? To fit in easily, to be acceptable in the way that we talk, in the way that we live, and we have doubts when it doesn't, Christianity, when it doesn't fit in nicely to a politically correct culture. Because we believe we can't just take some things that Jesus says, because we like them, because they do fit nicely, but then reject the others. You take all of Jesus or you don't. And that quickly, as you consider what he teaches, becomes challenging and scandalous today. We want Jesus to fit and fill every need that we have. Who doesn't? as you consider Jesus and the promises, at least the ones that, that we want to accept and engage in, we want him to fit and fill every need that we have. Yet we stumble and possibly resist Jesus when he wants to fill us in ways that aren't our choice. You know, we come to Jesus with, I'll, I'll believe you, I accept you, but address this one area of my life that I want you to. But don't mess with this other stuff because those are my desires, and those are my priorities, and I kind of like to leave them as it is. You, you can't do that. Jesus doesn't allow that as an option before us. That's where, and there's plenty of other examples, but that is where Jesus and following him and walking with him becomes scandalous. We must choose what it is that will do with Jesus. And I believe Peter is saying that is an ongoing decision. When, when stumbling happens, when the challenges of life come before us, are we considering him again? Are we moving towards him or are we moving away? So we're going to wrap this up. As we come to Jesus, remember who we are, what Jesus has done, and certainly how we are responding to him. Chapter 2, verse 5 speaks of these living stones 
that are being built up as a spiritual house. God's architecture is biological. It involves all of us joining us together. And here's, here's the frustrating thing. He joins us together as imperfect stones at first. Any architect, any builder, when considering the materials that you use, you don't want to compromise, right? Uh, you want the structure uh, to not be compromised. You want it to work, to stand up, whatever it is that you're building, right? It's foolish and silly to cut corners and, and try to save money uh, too much because the whole thing could fall down. But that's where the metaphor is different with this spiritual house that Jesus is building. If we're all living stones, we don't start perfect. There are rough edges. We're messy. He'll take us as we are put us into the building project and the glory of God's grace and the fact that he has promised to not finish on working on us, that he, he is going to finish what he started. Uh, the New Testament is clear on that. But we start as a mess. <laughs> you look at the spiritual house and it's always a work in project or in process. It doesn't look pretty all the time. And in fact, it may look like it's going to fall down. That's the reality of God's building project through Jesus with us. It is tempting, I know it is, for many of us to think at some point the church ought to just be, maybe not perfect, maybe don't go to that extreme, but the church ought to be better, better, usually and it's better for my benefit or, usually, or you know, sometimes for my friends, but Honestly, we've been at this for a while. It really ought to be better than it is, right? Uh, it, we're, in, we're in process. So I say that to say this. We've got to keep, as we approach Jesus, we've got to approach each other with grace, extended extra grace. That's not, that doesn't mean license to do whatever you want. We, kinda, we approached that a couple weeks ago. But as we're being built, just know and remember that it's a messy thing. We've got to love each other through the mess because as that capstone finishes the work, it's going to be glorious. What Jesus finishes with his bride is going to be so wonderful and so amazing and so sacred. Remember, remember that. There is no option B for the salvation of mankind. For what God is doing through Jesus. It's the church, period. So he knows what he's doing. He's not going to abandon us. Oh, you screwed up one more time and it's over. No, he doesn't, he doesn't work with his church like that. So remember to keep extending grace as Jesus himself continues to extend grace. And that's where the legacy of American evangelicalism is complicated. There's good things that we have all benefited from, and, what, and how we believe and how, how even our church functions and believes, right? But there are complicated things. So much of our existence as the church today is emphasizing personal belief. I have my personal salvation. I pursue Jesus in the way that I want to. And my uh, spiritual disciplines, uh, if you use that term, if you're, if you're thinking along those lines, uh, my personal testimony, right? That, that gets emphasized ab beyond and above the stories of other people. Spiritual growth in our world tends to be the, an individual journey. Is this connecting? 
That's though we talk in those terms most of the time within our culture, and that's one of the things that American evangelical belief has produced. And I'm telling you, there's some good to that, but that's not the end, and we've kind of made it the end, meaning me. I'm the beginning and the end of my spiritual journey. This house that Peter talks about is us, is we, is the people and the body, the church, as we work together. The house cannot be built if there are blocks missing. It cannot. We gotta be in this together. It's not just an individual salvation and nuts to you wherever you're at in life. We've gotta embrace and love each other in the messy building project that is a spiritual house. So we cannot lose that as we move forward. And we've got to be even maybe overemphasize that because we haven't for so many generations. So as you look at each other, especially during the pandemic, there are plenty of people that aren't coming because of the concerns of the virus and they're watching online and that's all well and good. But they're still a part of our church. So don't lose track of the other pieces of living stone that Jesus is also working on. We've gotta be aware of how he's continuing to work on us together. Represent, what, is it, what, what in the world do I mean by that? What does he say in uh, chapter two, verse nine? He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He goes on and on about that, and most of those, most of those words, that terminology is just lost to us. Uh, you know, royal stuff and chosen race and almost, you know, sounds like should we be talking in those kind of terms anymore? Uh, it's so lost to us. And that's why I'm, I just kind of settled on that word represent. I don't know if anybody talks like that anymore. But that is really what we should be doing as this house gets built up. This house that is Jesus, we represent him. He has chosen us. He set us apart. He has put us together to be this awesome representation of who Jesus is to a world that just doesn't get it because of all the stumbling blocks. And many times, Christians have put the stumbling blocks there. We're guilty of a lot of those stumbling places that people have tripped up on. So we've got to address those things. We've got to respond in a way so that the world sees us and, as Jesus has said, and as we adopted as the name of our church, to become a city on a hill that shines. People see us, and they know our good works, and what do they do? They glorify God in heaven. There's gotta be a God, because look at these people. Look at what they're doing, how they're living, their lifestyles, their priorities, how they love each other through all the messiness of life. That's not normal. Normal people don't do those things. There's got to be something. We can't pigeonhole them because of a um, political ideology, uh, even because of a religious one. There's something different about these people. What is it? It's Jesus. And they see it, and they hear it, and they glorify God. That's what we've got to be in a culture that is increasingly numb and ignorant to what the gospel truly is. We've got to represent. We are the, the hope that, that anyone will ever have to understand and to see who Jesus is. Finally, he says, proclaim his excellencies, uh, uh, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is excellent to you right now? And we'll close with that. Think about it. Of all the things that you delight in, that you enjoy, that seem excellent to you, what is it that rises to the top of your list? I have a new truck. And I think that's pretty excellent. And I get in my new truck, right? Thank you. I, we've talked about this for a while. I get in my new truck and start it up and see those lights flash and hear that V8 purring. And there's something in me that says, all is well. Because I'm, you know, I'm being a little silly, but not completely. Because I've wanted this thing for a while. It's just a truck. It's not, you know, it's not life. It shouldn't be life-altering. But I think that's pretty excellent. If that's on the top of my list, I'm in deep trouble. Really? Right? What is it that's on your excellent list? What rises to the top that stirs your heart, that gets it beating fast? Is it relationships with people? Uh, is it a promotion in the, in, with your job? Is it a new house? All those things are good things, but they're not the most excellent thing. Is Jesus becoming more of your hope and your longing, no matter who you are, where you're at, or the, the number of toys that you have? Does Jesus rise to the top every time? I know, we, and I struggle with that sometimes too, and I turn that truck on, yep, this is a good thing, but it's not the best thing, and it's not the most excellent thing. Remember, that is so crucial to keep asking ourselves that every day. How can you be ready? Peter says later, uh, we're not to chapter three yet, obviously, but he says to believers, to the church, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, to do that with gentleness and respect. Are you familiar with that verse? That's where we get the word apologetic, to have an apologetic, a way to explain, to reason with people. What, why do I live differently? Why do I have this hope? Well, that's not gonna matter unless Jesus is your most excellent person and thing in your life. Does that make sense? Who cares about an apologetic? Or if you care at all, it becomes lifeless. Or it's just another reason to argue with somebody. I've got the ironclad reason uh, and, and, and belief system, and you don't. And I'm gonna tell you how you failed, right? I mean, how many times have we come across like that, even if it wasn't intended? Maybe you've talked to people like that. It's just a turnoff because there's nothing excellent about Jesus in it if it turns you off. Is Jesus your most excellent thing? I plead with you this week to consider the things that you're engaging, the, the conversations you have, the things that you're doing. They may be really great. What is most excellent in your heart? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, move us in that direction. Today in this week, I pray for our church and all that Peter talks about and, and all that he reminds us of what you're doing, we thank you. In response, fill our hearts and minds again, Lord, with what is truly excellent about the salvation that we have that nothing in this world can touch and 
Lord, remind us of the glory of the honor, the honor that we have, because we are loved like you are loved by the Father. I still struggle with that, Lord Jesus. Make that another step in our hearts this week to prize what is most excellent in us because of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.